Welcome to episode 107 of the Infectious Historians podcast. I'm Merle. And I'm Lee. It's March 24th, 2023. And in today's episode, we're going to talk about the history of Jews during the medieval and early modern period and the impact of plague, both real and mythical, on their communities. Our guest today is Joshua Teplitsky, who is the Joseph Meyerhoff Associate Professor of Modern Jewish History at the University of Pennsylvania. He's the author of Prince of the Press, How One Collector Built History's Most Enduring and Remarkable Jewish Library from Yale University Press in 2019, that explores the history of an 18th century Jewish book collector and how he built his library. The book was awarded the Salo Baron Prize of the American Academy for Jewish Research for Best First Book in Jewish Studies in 2019, and the 2020 Jordan Schnitzer Book Award of the Association for Jewish Studies, and was a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award. Josh has also co-edited a volume that came out in 2022 entitled Be Fruitful, the Etrogan Jewish Art, Culture, and History, and is the co-director of a digital humanities project entitled Footprints, Jewish Books Through Time and Place, which reconstructs the history of Jewish books in motion from the invention of print through their contemporary provenance. He is currently at work on a monograph provisionally titled Quarantine in the Prague Ghetto, Jews, Christians, and the Plague in Early Modern Europe. Josh has also written several articles on this topic, as well as about the so-called immunity from plague that Jews supposedly had, which are going to be the focus of our discussion today. So welcome to the podcast, Josh. Hi, Lee. Hi, Merle. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. And as listeners know, we've definitely talked about plague quite a bit, maybe too much, for obvious reasons, since there's also a great deal of research on the topic that has continued to come out across the history of just this podcast alone. And we've spent time in our pandemic, quote unquote, the Justinianic plague and the Black Death. But what we really haven't done is focus on later outbreaks of plague as much that gives it the larger name of the second plague pandemic. And we thought it'd be great to focus on later outbreaks, the ones we often tend to forget, given our own history of COVID moving forward, and how this shaped local communities, in this case, the Jewish community in Prague. But Josh has also written on the idea that Jews were supposedly immune or at least impacted less, whatever that means, from plague. An idea that I have to say, Lee, at least five people sent me, if I recall, during the early days of COVID. It was one of those ideas that got a lot of press. And obviously, being Jewish myself, a lot of people sent this to me. I don't know if this was the case for you as well. Yeah, for me, it was students who asked me about it. I mean, I guess, Merle, we should also point out that we haven't really focused on Jews as a distinct group in medieval and early modern society all that much so far. So maybe zooming in on Jews today could serve as, as a case study for the impact of a disease epidemic in early modern community. And the time frame we're going to examine today, right, the 17th and 18th century is one that both of us, both you and myself, have said that we would want to keep revisiting. And at least for me, it's partially because this period still seems like kind of in between, right, with some elements that go back to the Middle Ages and others that are surprisingly modern and clearly not medieval. So I'm looking forward to learning more about Jews in Prague as well as the myths surrounding Jewish communities in the Middle Ages and early modern period, both the, their contemporary myths as well as those myths that persist until today. But before we go on, Merle, what's going on with Oklahoma these days? So last week was spring break. So actually, I'll tell you a story of Texas. That's another state in the United States, Lee, you know, just below us here in Oklahoma to give you some geography. But in any case, my family and I went to Fort Worth and Dallas for the first time. It's about three and a half or so hours away. And we did all the kids stuff there, science museums, aquarium, stockyards, where you see kind of the longhorn cattle walk down the street in a very ceremonial, ritualistic way, I should say. And we also went to a place called Bucky's, which is kind of indescribable, but it's a Texas phenomenon. It would be like if it was a 7-Eleven type store, except much better food. And then they also had like a giant section of Bucky's stuff that you could buy. And they have stuff that seems very Texan. There was a giant, you know, 50 types, maybe not 50, maybe 30 types of beef jerky you could buy in all types of flavors. And you could taste them and do all these types of things. It was very, very Texas. I can't even describe it to you, Lee, but it was quite a lot of fun. And everyone told us we had to go there. 
I'll just point out, Merle, that you've been much more enthusiastic about Texas right now than you have been about Oklahoma earlier on. I mean, I'll just put it there and all silent for a moment. Yeah, that's fair. Let me say this, though, Liat. My next point I was going to make is my thoughts on Dallas are that it's just kind of like a meh city in the sense of it's a big city. There's a lot to do there. But as someone from the East Coast, it didn't really have any unique thing about it, right? We're going to talk to Josh in a little bit, right? Philly has a certain sense about it, especially, you know, downtown near Constitution Hall and all these types of things that it has, right? Or Boston has a feel to it, or DC has a feel to it, right? All these cities are Chicago, San Francisco. Dallas is just kind of a giant city with corporate buildings downtown, right? The most Dallas thing about it, to be very honest, was the memorial to JFK and like the grassy knoll that you have to like go visit. And all I could think about was here you have a commemoration of this, you know, liberal icon, Boston Brahmin, Catholic guy set up in Dallas, Texas. And it seemed very ironic to me. And as you walk around the grassy knoll, you hear every single person talking about their personal conspiracy theory of who killed JFK. So that's also like a weird experience. And trying to explain this to five-year-old kids why we're looking at a random patch of grass is also a little strange because I don't obviously want to tell them exactly what's happening. So at the end of this trip, Lee, I actually came to the conclusion that I'm quite happy that we're in Oklahoma City and not actually in Dallas. Even though Dallas has a lot more things to do, it has a larger Jewish community, but it would just be a more expensive city that didn't really have its own feel, or at least I didn't get a sense of its feel. But Oklahoma City doesn't have a Bucky's, or does it? Maybe it does, I don't know. It doesn't have a Bucky's, but I will say, at least they're correct. The aquarium in Dallas, you should never go to, Lee, because it's not actually an aquarium. It's actually kind of like a zoo habitat with an aquarium on the bottom. My son was very displeased because we promised him lots of sharks, and we have to walk through the whole thing, and it's just like birds, and he's like, I don't care about the birds, where are the sharks, Dad? And so we had to like go really quickly throughout the entire thing until you get to the bottom where there's a few sharks and other fish. So words the wise for your daughter if you ever go to Dallas. And dare I ask, Lee, how you're doing in Israel? I know you've ceased to reply to any of my messages that I've sent to you for the last week. So I'm going to guess that it's a combination of new semester and I'll say happenings in Israel and let you fill it in. Yeah, so we have started a new semester here a couple of weeks ago, and that was, as usual, I guess, intense. But I think everyone's energy right here is currently directed at the looming constitutional crisis we have in Israel. It has mobilized large parts of the population, the Jewish population, I have to say, who generally protest against the government and the prime minister, both of whom are currently in the middle of a massive power grab that if this goes through, it will result in the removal of all checks and balances within the political system here and make Israel a much more authoritarian state. This is being portrayed by many elites, both in academia and outside academia, politicians and so on, as the worst crisis Israel has ever faced. And I say it will almost certainly escalate big time this coming week. So the next episode, whenever we record this, Merle, I'll probably have some good stories to tell. On campus, we've been filling all this as well with both demonstrations and, and student and faculty action. I have been discussing this in a political manner in all my classes, something I have never done before, but I have started doing last week. And there have been several pushes from faculty, especially to get all the universities, there are all state universities here, almost all of them are, to go on an unlimited strike. So the next vote and meeting on this decision is, is going to be on Sunday. So we'll see how things continue to develop here. So it seems to me, have there been discussions about you guys doing the French thing where everyone goes on strike everywhere, including like the garbage collectors and like everyone across the board? It's not exactly the way it works here. So over the past, let's say month or so, once a week, there's like a disruption day. I mean, that would be the translation in which, I mean, you're just supposed to make a mess by blocking streets and generally make life more difficult for especially politicians and kind of take over the public space, really. And this is all obviously nonviolent and so on. That's how we act here. For example, we have one airport, one real airport, and the prime minister was supposed to leave from that airport on some kind of state trip. So 
thousands of cars just like went to the airport and blocked all the ways in and just like kept driving inside the airport to block anyone for like being able to get there on time. At the end of the day, he came by a helicopter, but I mean, the point was made and he was forced to do that and couldn't like do what he wanted, which was the point there. And what about you, Josh? Are you in Philly these days? Yeah, happily, things are much less eventful where I am in the world. I'm talking to you from Philly right now, where things seem to be nice and stable and happy. I do have to say that this is first time, long time for me. I'm really happy to be on the show with you. Maybe I'll tell just a little story about how long I've been listening to this show. When the vaccines first came out in the winter of 2021, I had the good fortune to be able to relocate remotely to the south where weather was a little bit nicer. And I hopped in my car and drove from New York City down to South Florida. And the only thing that I listened to on the entire drive, which is not a short one, was the two of you on your podcast. So uh, thanks for that. First of all, thanks. That's very flattering. I do have to ask, did you like really hate us by the end? I mean, I think I would hate myself if I listened to myself for that long. You should try some time listening to yourselves on one and a half times speed. It comes out a little bit differently. Oh, that's what I do all the time. And every time I have to listen to myself, which is not the podcast, but when I record lessons, I do it a double the time. I mean, otherwise I just feel I'm speaking so slow. Students seem to think that it's too fast, even on like regular speed. Again, thanks for listening. And that's good to know that people are listening and chiming in and good to have you on as well. So I want to turn now kind of to the main part of the discussion. And, you know, as I always like to joke with Lee, he's probably tired of hearing me say this, I'll ask my great unfair question first. And we've talked a lot about the Black Death on this podcast, so I don't think we have to cover what that is, but we spent less time on later outbreaks of the second plague pandemic. So maybe you can tell us what is the second plague pandemic and how far after the 1340s does the plague keep happening? Thanks for that question. I think part of the importance of that question is precisely that the era of the second plague pandemic beginning in the 1340s and lasting well into the 18th is precisely the fact that, at least I think in the eyes of people who lived through these epidemics, it wasn't as shocking as the Black Death itself. After the initial outbreak of the Black Death, the recurrence of plague in the lives of Europeans nearly once a generation made it something of a feature of life. Not a happy feature, always a devastating feature, but one that didn't provoke or prod the same kind of search for causes of catastrophe as that initial outbreak from the 1340s. The 17th century, for example, witnessed the Great Italian Plague around 1630. The English knew their Great Plague of London. And the Habsburg lands alone, Austria, Bohemia, Moravia, Plague struck those places in 1649, 1680, 1713, a recurring feature of the environment and landscape. So could we say that, generally speaking, an average European, let's say, right, would they experience maybe a couple episodes of plague during their life? I'd been consulting early modern Jewish memoirs and autobiographies produced in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, and I have yet to discover one that does not include at least an encounter with the plague at a certain point during the lifetime of the author. It's so very ubiquitous that it's virtually impossible to find a source of that nature in which plague doesn't show up and impact travels, family, community, or visions of what health and wellness look like. So I guess the other question to set the scene about the plague is, what are the effects, right? I mean, the Black Death kills a lot of people. We can throw a percentage number, a millions number on here. But what did these later outbreaks do? In some of the instances that I've had the opportunity to look at the sources about, some of them claim as much as a third of the residents or inhabitants of a city. Something really approaching the grand catastrophic scale of the early 14th century epidemics. The difference, of course, between them is that we're not looking at a pandemic that strikes everyone all at once, but rather is usually far more localized. And that mitigates to a degree its impact, even though it's a devastating one at that. What exactly would the sources be for these estimates? Are these broad estimates of someone saying, oh, somewhere around a third of the people died? Or do you actually have lists of people who died and, and kind of like get into high resolution? 
Let's put it that way. Yeah. An epidemic that I looked at from the year 1680 from the city of Prague, a fairly comprehensive list of all of the names of the deceased of the Jewish community of Prague has survived. In an epidemic from about a generation later, from the year 1713, records that are produced by the Imperial Center in the city of Vienna keep a fairly running death tally of the numbers of deaths divided up by the different sub-municipalities of the city of Prague at that. And that correlates pretty closely or matches pretty nicely the records that are kept by the Jewish community. It gives us a fairly clear field of vision to see that these seem to be decently accurate records. So I guess the next question kind of set the scene for our listeners that you've already said, right, that there are Jewish communities. As someone who doesn't work, you know, past the year 1500, and I get very uncomfortable, as I like to joke, past the year 1350, I'm familiar with the expulsions of Jews from Western Europe, right? France is probably the one that I've spent the most time reading about, but also obviously England and then famously Spain as well at the end of the 15th century. Where are the Jews, I guess, in communities? Where are they living in the 17th and 18th century? And do we have a sense in what numbers, maybe percentage wise of populations in different places? Maybe Prague would be a good example here. That's a crucially important question. The waning of the Middle Ages witnessed the expulsion of Jews from so many places that one historian of the early modern period has labeled it an exodus from the West, albeit one of forced mobility rather than redemption. That said, Jews found flourishing, or at the very least, quite inviting homes in other parts of the world, especially in the Ottoman Empire and the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. In many parts of the Italian peninsula, Jews were not expelled, although they were ghettoized, which altered their relationship to the surrounding society. The city of Amsterdam emerges in the 17th century as a center of refuge, and Atlantic entrepôts begin to emerge as well as places that Jews go. More closer to my own area of research and archival specialization, even in Central Europe in the Holy Roman Empire, there were important urban centers from which Jews were expelled, but there were also centers from which they were not, among them the cities of Frankfurt and Prague. And we should probably add to this also that even as Jews fanned out from larger cities from which they were expelled, many of them relocated only to the surrounding countryside, retaining much of their relationship with the urban centers even though they were excluded as night fell from the city walls themselves. To give something of a sense, it's, you know, each have different numbers or population proportions. The city that I know best, the city of Prague, at the start of the 18th century, had a population of about 11,000 Jews in a total of 40,000 residents of the city. Quite a high population. That makes it quite remarkable, but remarkable is interesting. You mentioned several times already, and I'm sure we're going to get back to that later, that the Jews are living in ghettos or are ghettoized. Could you maybe say a bit more about what does the ghetto mean in this particular time and context? Thank you. Yeah. In many ways, the early modern period from the 14th to the 18th centuries is the period of Jewish ghettoization. Many people often associate the ghetto as a medieval institution. Technically, the ghetto itself is an invention of the 16th century, and it's predominantly found in urban centers that house Jews on the Italian peninsula. There are ghettos in some of the other cities, like the ones that I've mentioned already, like Frankfurt and Prague. They involved a ghetto is a space in which Jews were confined within the larger cityscape that was segregated and mandatory. Jews were not permitted to live anywhere else that was designed to mark them off spatially from the rest of the population. But even as it did that, it posed something of an alternative to wholesale expulsion. Jews may have been cordoned off in part of the city, but they still remained part of the fabric of the city's hustle and bustle. So even the Jewish elite would stay within the ghetto? By and large, yes, with some exceptions. So maybe now we can turn to more specific examples of Jews and plague, combine the two kind of framing points. And you've already mentioned the 1713 outbreak of plague in Prague. Can you just, I guess, tell us what happens? How long does this last? And maybe what's the demographic impact to start, and then we can start to tease out some of the responses and experiences. 
In the late summer of 1713, plague broke out in the city of Prague. It had been in more eastern parts of the European map already by spring or the winter of that year. Reports had filtered into Vienna and to medical facilities in Prague itself of outbreaks in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. But by the late summer, it had reared its head in Prague itself. Evidence seems to suggest that the first outbreaks were in the Jewish quarter or ghetto of the city. And within days, and then certainly within weeks, the death toll rapidly mounted as contagion engulfed the city as a whole. Jews and Christians experienced, in fact, even experienced the same mortality rate of the plague to the same degree, except I would argue that Jews experienced this qualitatively in different ways. Within a relatively short amount of time, in the late weeks of August, the Jewish ghetto was ordered sealed shut barring all mobility of Jews in or out, and also severely limiting the movement of resources, food, medical practitioners, and medicine itself, not to mention the removal of the dead and the corpses in only particular times. By the time the plague outbreaks subsided in December of that same year, something of a third of the total population's lives had been claimed. About 12,000 residents of the city in total had lost their lives, among them between 3,400 and 3,700 Jews. So what were some of the responses of Jews? I mean, did all the Jews actually stay in there or did some of them manage to get out of there somehow? How did the community react, broadly speaking? And then maybe we can zoom in on some of the case studies that you've teased out in some of your earlier work. That's a really valuable question, especially because in my project, I'm really interested in exploring both the commonalities and the discontinuities between Jewish and Christian experience and ways to explore the interactions between them. Maybe before answering that question, I will point out that one of the things that attracted me in particular to this outbreak was the amazing array of genres of primary sources that the plague has left in its wake in this particular outbreak. It's left for us administrative orders that came from the Habsburg monarchy to municipal administrators in the city of Prague. We've got Jewish authored registers of communal organization. We have books that are printed by Prague's medical faculty, including one by a doctor giving a full account of the plague. We've got Hebrew prayers that are printed in anticipation of the plague's arrival, rabbinic writings by rabbis who are trying to figure out how to accommodate religious life to new situations, and no fewer than three Yiddish epic poems that tell the story from the perspective of inside the ghetto itself. If we're going on this tangent, right, so I'll continue on. How exceptional is this? I mean, is this particular epidemic, particular time and place, so Prague 1713, is this somehow different with regards to this very diverse source base that you've mentioned? Or is your impression that this is more or less the same in other times and places in, let's say, early modern Central and Western Europe? It's a good question. My impression, I'll say it trepidatiously, my impression is that this is somewhat exceptional. That may, of course, be a question more of preservation than the production of sources, but I do think that this outbreak generated a significant number of diverse sources in ways that others didn't. Maybe it was because Prague had a fairly robust printing scene of Hebrew and Yiddish texts, and that may have produced more. Maybe it does have to do with preservation, like the chief rabbi of the city who was a book collector par excellence and preserved many of the records from this moment in his personal archive that have survived down to this day. One thing that emerges, right, is the ghetto is sealed and, you know, no one's allowed out, which again, sounds somewhat unusual, but also not that unusual, right? The obvious comparison that pops into my mind is, say, Honolulu and the Chinese community in the 1899 outbreak or San Francisco, you know, just the following year. So, those also sound like typical responses. Are the responses different as well as having more sources, including epic Yiddish poetry, which I'd love to know what that looks like? I guess that depends if we're talking about the kinds of impositions that are placed on the community from larger municipal or imperial authorities, or the ones that the folks living within, that is to say the Jewish residents of the ghetto themselves responded. Certainly a common feature across all peoples there were those that could find the opportunity to escape did just that. That's a remedy as old as medical science itself to flee fast, far away 
and for as long as possible. And we certainly have records, including those Yiddish epics themselves, that lament and wail the fact that a mass exodus from the ghetto before it was sealed certainly took place. In no small part, this was also because the city administrators of Prague weren't very efficient at sealing those ghetto gates. In fact, it took them something like a month to actually execute the entire process, allowing a good number of people to make arrangements and figure out their lives before it was all done. So maybe thinking about these people who leave in this great source space that you've mentioned, have you encountered any cases of people losing their belongings and, I don't know, houses being broken into after a family leaves to like flee plague? I mean, because you'd expect something like that to happen, right? I couldn't be happier that you asked that question. One instance of sources that I've encountered are worries or anxieties by municipal authorities who try to regulate what people do with their belongings. And in the context of Jews in particular, the municipal authorities bar their Christian neighbors from holding on to their goods for them. Historians like us know that that's an amazing opportunity to look past what state authorities are trying to block and learn what ordinary people might well be doing, which tells us that even in a crisis like this, Jews and their ordinary Christian neighbors may well have had a modicum of camaraderie, of neighborliness, of shared destiny in which trust across denominational lines appear to have obtained, even though the state may have wished otherwise. Do you have any other similar examples where people are either crossing lines or hardening lines during this process? Yes. One that really strikes me that I think is actually quite amazing is a document that survives in the National Archives in Prague, but it was directed towards the imperial authorities in Vienna by a Jewish man who lived within the Prague ghetto and his home was built into the wall itself. Or maybe we should say the wall was built into the structures of his home. After the ghetto gates had been sealed, he wrote a petition to the state asking for permission to leave the ghetto, observing that, or at least making the claim that, while his neighbors were not being particularly faithful to plague regulations, he and his family members had stayed at home like they were supposed to. But the way that he marshaled this evidence in order to offer his petition was by producing an affidavit that had upon it the signatures of non-Jewish neighbors whose houses abutted his from just the other side of the wall. And they offered their signatures clearly in support that indicates some kind of pre-existing set of social relations and a willingness to sign their names in German, in Czech, all in support of this neighbor who was just on the opposite side of the ghetto wall from them. We're hearing about all these people who are running away. Is there any concern that they might be spreading plague and taking it to other places? Does anyone care about this at all or... Is everyone just like ignoring that possibility, right? So the state, the community, the individuals themselves. I would say definitely yes. Definitely yes. Although in the early weeks before the epidemic itself has really crested, there are already attempts that are being made to limit the mobility of Jews. Those limitations are often imposed by petty nobles who are living in the Bohemian countryside around the Prague metropolis. And interestingly, because the plague is not raging as strong as it is in the moment, we see moments of intervention by the emperor's office to forbid those petty nobles from barring the Jews' mobility. Maybe this had to do with the fact that Jews were an important merchant class that lubricated the wheels of commerce. But one way or another, we can see some of the tensions at work there. On the one hand, barring their mobility. On the other hand, facilitating that mobility. As the plague rages and as the death toll rises, increasing limitations are placed on that mobility, definitely out of a concern that the plague itself is being spread by Jews in motion themselves. And maybe just as a comparison, between Jews and Christians here. So are Christians mobility broadly? Is it also somehow limited or does the state and municipality just like leave them be and let them do whatever they wanted? It seems that at least between city and countryside, there are far fewer limitations that are placed on Christians in motion. A regime of health passes that require that people demonstrate that the place that they had just come from was one that was free from plague is implemented and put into place for Christians and Jews alike. But the complete barring or sealing up of the ghetto does not have the same counter experience in the Christian parts of the city. 
Out of curiosity, do we also have any examples where later on people kind of create a myth or a story or whatever you want to call it about those people who stayed versus those people who left, right? I mean, I think about this during COVID, right? We kind of have these myths of people who stayed in the heart of COVID versus those who left for various reasons, right? I think most people would say, if I could leave, I would leave. But do we have a sense of afterwards, people coming together and be like, we were the ones who stayed the real you know, community? I tend to think so. I think particularly these Yiddish epic poems that I was referring to earlier, while they are on the whole white generous to virtually all of the parties involved, including non-Jewish authorities, they do reserve special criticism for that select number of people who managed to escape the ghetto and who managed to flee elsewhere. Not least among, or in fact, one of the particular objects of their ire and criticism was the chief rabbi of the city himself, that great collector of books, and the subject of the only monograph I've ever written so far, a man by the name of David Oppenheim who did not please his constituents by fleeing the city when he could. Maybe that's a good segue into at least a brief discussion of the theology underlying all this. So how do Jews, if at all, understand plague or disease, epidemic disease, broadly speaking, from a theological perspective? The sources don't do us that many favors when trying to figure out what the theology at work is for these people. They speak in very broad and vague terms about God's divine wrath. They implore God for mercy and deliverance from the plague. But unfortunately, they don't get into great and grave detail for us about why in particular they think they've been affected and afflicted. One of the few places that I get a bit of a sense of the theology is from prayers that are produced not at the height of or even in the midst of the epidemic itself, but rather in its aftermath and as part of its memory. And this especially revolves around issues of gender. About five years after the plague subsided, a small pamphlet was produced in the city of Prague in the Yiddish language designed for women's prayers to be uttered over the unmarked graves of victims of the plague. These unmarked graves probably belonged to the poorest strata of society. It was probably people in motion, the poor who didn't have rights of residence, and many of them were buried without last rites or any kind of mourning rituals. The prayers that were printed for these women five years after the end of the outbreak were designed for an annual commemoration rite to bewail the death of these people who were not sent off into the hereafter as they deserved. And very often, the women who recite these prayers are told by the prayer book to think of them as martyrs. Even though they're not martyrs who have lost their lives at the hands of the violence of others, they are martyrs of a different sort who linger in collective and communal memory as people who met their demise in ways that they should not have. This actually reminds me of, of the ways in which Muslims who die during epidemics are being portrayed as martyrs in the Islamic tradition, at least by several Muslim thinkers. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting and fruitful space for comparison to think through how violence, even by divine hands, which is not usually how martyrdom is constituted, ends up making its way through some creative appropriations into different religious traditions in this way. Yeah, it'd be interesting to know where that idea comes from, because the Islamic martyrs that Lee mentioned comes very much out of a 6th, 7th century Christian milieu in which they're separating different ways in which punishment by God is supposed to be meted out. And the idea of martyrdom is very different, obviously, than the Christian reaction that's pretty standardized by the time of the Islamic conquest. So just something that would be fun if you did more work on for us and then came back on. Agreed. I think that part of it probably has to do with genres of liturgical memorization. You know, I think that familiar and common forms of weaving current events into larger historical sweeps, making meaning out of history, making meaning out of the loss of lives, are probably most familiar to early modern Jews in the context of memorial rituals that have a firm basis, certainly from liturgies and rituals that have come from the Middle Ages, that commemorate the remarkable and tragic death of martyrs. And it wouldn't surprise me if some of those genres helped to condition the way that later printings and publications also took shape. Now, maybe to continue along religion or religious aspects of plague, 
So you've worked on the responsa, right? So these questions and answers that members of the community would ask their rabbis. So would you mind telling us a little at least about some of the questions that relate to these epidemics and what are people concerned with when these epidemics come towards and hit their city? I'd be happy to. Yeah, the genre that you're referencing right now of rabbinic responsa belongs to a particular category of Jewish writing in which rabbis in an epistolary fashion receive letters from questioners and produce fairly lengthy legal responses. And these are almost always designed for cases that emerge that confound past precedents and raise questions and require new solutions to them. And a plague outbreak is a perfect example of that. We have three surviving novel rabbinic cases that emerge from this 1713 outbreak in plague alone. The first of them, somewhat surprisingly, involves questions to a rabbi about sex and procreation. The second of them involves questions about how to appropriately disperse charity. And the third of them raises questions about fitness for burial and how to conduct burial practices at times under great strain and pressure. So can you maybe, using one of those, give us an example of what people asked? I mean, I guess I'm most curious about the sex one, because the charity and the fitness for burial seem, I would guess, more obvious. But what's happening with that one? Yeah, I think the sex one is the most interesting one, too. So I'm glad you asked about that one. A question comes into a man by the name of Jacob Reicher, who is a member of the Prague Rabbinic Court. He's the author of these responsa, and he gets what to my eyes is something of a curious question also. The questioner comes from a man who is very concerned that he has not yet fulfilled his religious obligation to produce children, a Jewish mitzvah, Jewish ritual obligation to have children, an extension of the divine commandment to be fruitful and multiply, which Jews of the Middle Ages and early modern period and before and since then have understood as a requirement to produce one male and one female child. The author of this question was concerned. Facing potentially his own demise, he was worried that he had not yet fulfilled his duties in this world before he moved on to the other world, and wrote to this rabbi to ask what he should do in a time of plague. Should he actively seek out the opportunity to procreate with his spouse or not? I think the episode and the question is such an interesting one because it weighs all of these issues of present and future worry and anxiety over religious obligation against what the consequences and outcomes are, worry over how to take care of family, whereas also hoping to build family nicely weaves together a whole body of questions that take us really into the inner chambers of domestic life as ritual and disease interact with it. So I read your work referring to that particular case. And one of the things that striked me as I did that was whether there were not like any similar enough precedents for other people to deal with these questions, right? Similar life-threatening events were probably more familiar to people at the time, whether we're talking about other epidemics, right? Or maybe wars or, or famines or whatever. So I'm not sure we can answer that question, right? But what may have made this particular outbreak to be exceptional in this case? Well, Lee, I think you're going to stump me on this one. I'm not sure I have the answer here, but I'm glad you asked it all the same. Because maybe we can puzzle out some of the potentials. It is possible that indeed this was the first time that it was asked, but I share your skepticism about it. It may mean that earlier instances were simply not preserved, or, and I think this is a third and equally plausible possibility, is that sometimes within this genre of writing, rabbis used it as an opportunity to display their own erudition. It was also an opportunity to be intellectually creative, maybe like starting a podcast in the middle of a global pandemic at that. So to follow up on this third opportunity, right? Is it being considered among scholars today that some of these questions may have been formulated by the rabbis themselves? That is to say that a rabbi would ask himself, so to speak, a question just to be able to promote a particular worldview, for example, or display his erudition? 
Definitely, yes. The scholar who reads sources like this has to be very sensitive and attuned to the distinct and very real possibility that at times these were prompts that were produced by the rabbi as intellectual themselves, even if not certainly faced with a material social question of this nature. Now, in many cases, they were, but they've gone through editorial processes, especially when they move from manuscript to print, that often remove from them all of their historical context, which makes the rabbi's inclusion of the data that begins his question, says, in the year 1713, I encountered plague, makes it somewhat more likely that this was a real question. And perhaps the question doesn't matter at that. For whether or not a lived social experience prompted this question, these questions enter into the broader canon of rabbinic Jewish study. And that means that they also do have an impact on the reception of ideas and the crafting of future ideas and practices and rituals after that. So maybe to turn to a last set of things I wanted to talk about based on some of your work and something we hinted at heavily in the beginning, or at least I hinted at heavily in the beginning, and I think Lee did as well, is moving past this one outbreak in 1713, but to some of the articles sent to me by well-educated friends, colleagues, family members about Jewish immunity early on in COVID when it comes to plague. So first of all, is there any truth to the idea that Jews are immune to plague from a purely biological perspective first? And then we'll turn to some of the ideas behind this. It's such a good question. And like the two of you, I similarly, in every time I teach a class about the late Middle Ages into the early modern period, encounter at least one student who raises their hand and asks, isn't it true that... Jews survived the plague in greater number than others. This was a question that bothered me so much that I decided to do a deep dive into the material and figure out where this isn't it true question comes from. And at least from the research that I've conducted, I cannot find a material basis for this at all. I am not able to discern a differential mortality rate between Christians and Jews on a deep cellular biological sense. And that's what really made my ears tingle. In fact, even historical figures who lived through the Black Death itself were not able to discern such a difference. No less illustrious a figure than Pope Clement VI, who was the reigning pope at the time of the outbreak of the Black Death in the 1340s, chastised religious leaders across the continent. And he gives us a sense of the origins of this rumor. The pope chastised folks who seem to be blaming the plague on Jews, identifying a rumor that Jews were surviving the plague in numbers distinct from and greater than others. But the Pope aimed to correct this rumor by telling his readers that it cannot be true. And I think maybe I'll pull up a quote here. It says, it cannot be true that Jews by such a heinous crime are the causes of the occasion of the plague, because throughout many parts of the world, the same plague has afflicted and afflicts the Jews themselves, and many other races who have never lived alongside them. I think for our purposes, what's so interesting here is that this brief text or this brief quotation from the Pope bears witness both to the reality and already to the existence of this myth that Jews somehow outsurvive others. And what's very interesting about that, and I think we'll get into the details, is this is not like it's a source that's not well known, right? I presume this is a papal bull that has been published for hundreds of years and probably existed in translation for quite a long time as well. Is that correct? Published and translated in every good source reader about the history of the Black Death. So, of course, the question here is what makes this myth right so popular, right? So that Merle's friends and family members and our students, everyone seems to know this, right? So There are a lot of, obviously, ideas from the Middle Ages that circulate in the Middle Ages, and some of them get transmitted to, like, modernity. Where does this idea come from, if you know, right? I mean, this is just like the intellectual history of this myth. I mean, you said that you started working on this, so you may know. You definitely know more than I do. Well, certainly, as we noted, the Pope's grappling with this myth indicates that it is one that is born at least in the moment of the outbreak of the Black Death, if not earlier, during, let's say, well-poisoning accusations that preceded this moment by 30-plus some odd years. The idea that Jews were somehow responsible for the plague certainly did circulate in some forms. Maybe they were poisoners, different forms of conspiracies. 
And those myths often suggested that Jews would, in some cases not even had, but would therefore escape it. It's hard to find, as I said, evidence for this because in many places, Jews faced massacre as a result of these accusations of well poisoning that in many cases preceded the outbreak of the plague itself, making it impossible for Jews to have had the opportunity to outsurvive others when it comes to the contagion. I do think, though, that in time, this accusation that began with Christians who were hostile to Jews was taken up by Jews themselves who disseminated different notions amongst their co-religionists that they had been spared the worst. The myth was usually accounted in printed histories from the 15th and 16th and 17th centuries that probably sought to explain to Jewish readers why it was that their ancestors had been subject to persecution in Plague's Wake. But those remarks were usually quite incidental, brief, and laconic. To my mind, from the research that I've done, it seems that it was really only in the 19th century that the idea that Jews possessed a particular resilience, a greater immunity to Black death than others, became common currency. So the version that comes up in my classes is seems to associate Jews with cleanliness, and especially religious ritual cleanliness, and that is supposed to somehow make them more resilient or more resistant to the impacts of plague. That does seem to be what people say. Two interesting parts about that. One, you would need to demonstrate that Jews actually did outsurvive others. Two, that does take as an assumption that all Jews of the past were as ritually observant as one might like to imagine or project onto the past for them to be. And that's a pretty big question at that. But I think even more importantly than any of those, I was not able to encounter in any text printed in the early modern period. And I deliberately paid attention to printed texts because I wanted to see the wide dissemination of this idea. I was not able to discern in any of those texts musings about Jewish hyperfitness because of their ritual practices. I only began to see such explanations in the late 19th century, in particular with the writings of one of the preeminent historians of modern Jewry, Heinrich Gretz. But Gretz was writing in a really interesting moment. Writing in the last quarter of the 19th century, he was writing at a time when theories about the microbe, theories about sanitation, and theories about hygiene were being discovered, confirmed, printed and rapidly disseminated and accepted. And I think that it is no coincidence that this professional historian was writing in a moment in which we were learning ever more about germs and in which significant discourses about Jews were being talked about in the context of health and illness as Jews themselves struggled to gain the rights of equal citizenship in many places in Europe at this time. Does any of this have to do with kind of the myths, for lack of a better term, that I feel like Jews also tell that somehow we have a very closed off biological sense of ourselves very often, right? I mean, the most obvious way this exhibits itself is in some factual basis, right? Say genetic testing for certain diseases and those types of things. But is there some sense that people like to imagine, and maybe this goes to the ritual question, that Jews are a kind of closed off community that have always been, you know, better or whatever you want to say than other groups. You know, I'm glad that you asked it, Merle, because I, I do think that brings us back to Lee's previous question was to point out that it was about ritual behavior rather than any kind of essentialized trait. The historians who talk about it in the 19th century and into the 20th century almost always, actually, I think always root this in a set of practices and behaviors, social identities, they tend not to take it to the genetic level, the biological, or dare I even say racial level. It's really only been in the past 20 years or so, even within the past decade, there are some odd persistences of this myth. There are some scholars and scientists who even relatively recently have attempted to explore genetic interpretations for the survival of Jews during the Black Death. But I think this is still looking to explain a phenomenon without the actual evidence that this phenomenon ever really took place. And if I remember from even biological genetic studies, there wasn't really 
very good evidence. I remember when someone sent me one of these articles, I dug back through the article and actually read the thing as opposed to the summary or the press release or whatever it was. There was no there there, aside from the fact that there was no historical there either. I'm inclined to agree. So I guess I have a couple other questions. Do you see this changing, developing, continuing over time, right? Are people going to keep claiming this, you think, despite your work? And then maybe I have kind of a meta question about your work and deconstructing more generally when it comes to this. That's an interesting question. I should probably also add that myths of Jewish hyperimmunity or sometimes of hyper susceptibility have been part of different outbreaks of the 19th and 20th centuries at that. I've been sent over time different encyclopedia articles that it's asserted not just bubonic plague, but tuberculosis as either a very Jewish disease or not a Jewish disease. It's interesting that this distinct different group has become something of a lightning rod for thinking about hyper or hypo immunity. Now, when we're talking about Jews in all this context, we are focusing on Ashkenazi Jews, correct? That is correct. You know, partly that's just the nature of the source base that I've had the opportunity to look at, but also in significant numbers, the European archives talk about the persistence of Ashkenazi Jewish life. Um, one of the most remarkable biological archives that we have about Jewish life during the Black Death does come from the Iberian Peninsula in the 1340s, and that tells us something about Sephardic Jewish life. But you are correct that the vast number of discourses do appear to be linked primarily to discussions about the Jews of Central and Eastern Europe and their descendants who make up the lion's share of American and North American Jewry to this day. So... As I said I would, I have kind of a meta question at the end, just in terms of the reception of this piece, right? Because one could imagine, you know, from our perspective, right, this is a wonderful article that, you know, I could now assign or send to friends or colleagues or give to people to kind of be like, yeah, this is not true. And here's someone who proved that it's not true in a really wonderful print way. And it's great to hear how you went about doing this in the sense of it came out of this genuine, you know, intellectual, like, please stop sending me these articles and stop asking these questions. And this is why I did it. Have you been able to get any traction or have you tried to get any traction in more popular Jewish spheres, for lack of a better term, right? I mean, because that's ultimately who needs to be convinced by this, right? So you've done this wonderful job. And have you thought about reaching out to other communities or trying to put this somewhere else where other people are going to read it, because that's ultimately, I would suggest, the audience who needs to know this is, you know, your parents or my parents or Lee's parents or whatever, rather than the three of us. I guess I could travel around to weddings and bar mitzvahs sharing this information. Uh, <laughs> I hadn't thought about it too much, although your point is so well taken, especially because the primary vehicle of this myth continues to be things like Wikipedia pages that have full sections dedicated in them to the header, why did Jews survive the Black Death more than Christians did? It's partly my hope that someday somebody edits that Wikipedia page and that part of my evidence in my article falls away. I will say that a very wise friend suggested to me to make sure I had screenshots just in case the article is so impactful that the evidence itself dematerializes. But I think your point is very well taken that we historians do have a responsibility. At the start of COVID, we saw all kinds of myths circulating about different communities that may have been more responsible or less responsible for its dissemination. We saw different myths circulating within communities about hyper or hypo immunity that discouraged some from getting vaccinated. And so there are really real and important and potent material ramifications for the health and well-being of ordinary people to think about the origins of these myths and the damage that they can sometimes do. Before we do wrap up, though, I had another question, which, again, plagues me in my classes, right? So the Hebrew word for plague today is devil, right? And this appears in the Hebrew Bible as well as some sort of, of cattle plague or some cattle disease that is one of the 10 plagues of Egypt. When does that biblical cattle plague that word, the word devil, come to describe the Yersinia pestis plague that we keep on using today 
as so many of my students would be grateful for any answer on that? That's a neat question. And it's one that, you know, I don't have the answer to that only because I haven't taken the time to do a deep dive into that question. But I will say this. Jews of the early modern period, at least in Central and Eastern Europe, use a number of different words to refer to this. Sometimes they call it the word you're referring to, a cattle plague. Sometimes they refer to it in more generic terms, magefa, or plague like that. And sometimes they also use a Yiddish word. The word is ipush, or stench, to associate with the plague, which gives us a sense of their understanding as it being a miasmatic disease that emerges from environmental pollution. And in fact, there are different rabbinic texts from the 17th and 18th centuries that debate the uses of the words they use, much in the same way as 16th century Italian physicians and medics are questioning whether or not they are experiencing true plague or disease that is somewhat different than it. And the linguistic diversity is one of the pieces of evidence they marshal to think through what actual disease they're encountering in their own time. Yeah, which I think makes sense. I mean, there are, as you just said, right, other examples of this linguistic diversity being sorted out at some point during early modernity and, and people coming up with distinct terminology for what we see today as distinct diseases. Right. So as that, I think we can wrap up the interview part of this episode. So thanks so much, Josh, for coming on the podcast, sharing your stories and listening to the podcast and being such a great listener and guest on this. Thanks. Thank you both for having me. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on. So yeah, I really enjoyed that discussion and there's a lot to reflect upon, I think. But the first thing I'll say, Lee, is the source base that he has is just fantastic. And obviously, I really wish now, I guess, secretly I was an early modernist with a better source base, maybe. You can always convert. I mean, I think what this podcast is doing is kind of slowly pushing us towards that period rather than staying in antiquity and late antiquity and even medieval times, which is where we've been trained. I feel... This episode is actually pretty similar to the one we had not that long ago, what, like two or three episodes back with Mary Dunn on French Canada, right? Which was also like a place where we kind of found these primary sources that we were not aware of before and that they can be useful even for people outside those particular fields. I mean, both of us were really thought about this for teaching. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a really useful way and hopefully maybe we can follow up with josh get some of these things in translation because you know as we have long said the early modern period is where we have the most problems in our primary sources for students so i think that's a really good point i mean you also see because of the sources and some of the things we talked about right people fleeing trapping people into cities or whatever they might be burial problems you can very much see and understand why people want to make this Black Death to Justinianic Plague comparison, right? Both are pre-modern pandemics, both are plague. So if you have richer sources on one, shouldn't it be the same in the other? I mean, that's the easy way to try to fit these things together. But here I would probably recommend us getting our colleague, Tim Newfield, who was a previous guest on this show, to come and talk to us about his still new article, I think, which came out, what, like two or three months ago in which he actually critiqued pretty significantly this connection between the Black Death and the Justinianic Plague. I completely agree. Although, if you also recall, Lee, who is the hardest guest to book on our podcast for the history of this podcast? Tim Newfield. Tim Newfield, for sure. I mean, not the only hard person to try to get a hold on, but definitely one of the top ones. The other thing I think is really interesting is what we touched upon kind of toward the end, which is this question of immunity, you know, that I think he thoroughly debunked both in its own time period, you know, the 14th century or later, and even today. But one thing I asked him, which would be interesting to see him do, I mean, part of this is this podcast, which is why we had him on, is how to incentivize people who still think that to push that idea, right? To make sure that people understand kind of 
the imagination, the myth that this really is. Yeah, and I think this actually ties into a broader issue that has been around this podcast for quite some time, which is the connection between myth and disease, right? So if you're thinking about myths concerning Jews and diseases, broadly speaking, I think the two most prominent ones are the immunity question and also Jews as scapegoats during the Black Death. That has also like been very much at the front of several of my classes. I mean, students are here, at least in Israel, are clearly interested in those kind of questions. And what we might want to do at some point in the future, Merle, this could be like a popular book, like examining myths about diseases and, and trying to figure out whether they're like, more or less true. Yeah, I mean, there is, as you know, uh, a genre of that for sure. You know, myths about the Middle Ages, myths about the Black Death is something we could do. You're just giving us more books to write, Lee, of which we have no time to write any books. But sure, we can add this to our list of the nine other books we're supposed to be doing. So one reason why I think we have no time, although in a wonderful way, is doing stuff with our kids. So Lee, as your daughter continues to get a little older, is there anything new that she's super into these days? Yeah, it's unicorn season. Like heavy, heavy unicorn season. I mean, so today she wanted to have a unicorn shirt, a unicorn pants, unicorn underwear, which she came into like her preschool and showed her teacher at preschool that she had unicorn underwear. I asked her if she wanted also unicorn shoes. And that was like kind of the line she drew, but she's definitely into unicorns right now. When did this start and where did it come from? I mean, she was always interested in unicorns just because some of her clothes, which are secondhand clothes, they have those on them. But that was like never a big thing. And it turned out to be a big thing. Maybe let's say like two or three months ago, she became more aware that she can choose these things and enjoy these things as well. I mean, at winter, for example, when she would have like the unicorn t-shirt, she would not want to cover it, even if it's like super cold outside. So she would like take an open sweater and an open coat so she can look down at the unicorn and enjoy it in whatever way. Well, you've officially entered the phase of you can't dress your kids anymore. I attempted to put some, you know, just standard sweatpants and a standard shirt on my daughter and she rebelled and took it all off and put on something else. So, you know, just so you know what's about to happen. That has happened. Yeah. I'm not even trying. I'm like, you know, whatever. I mean, the only thing we're successful still, that's like a red line is that she cannot wear both a pink shirt and pink pants. She can wear one of them, but not both pink. There is a limit even to us. You'll lose that battle too. We're still holding the line though. What about your kids? I mean, they're like growing up as well. Yeah. They're very into sea creatures at the moment. So my son is super into sharks and he has never really liked stuffed animals. My daughter's always been into stuffed animals, but he doesn't care, except now he has two shark stuffed animals, one named Bandark and one named Bamboo. And so now he's completely obsessed with the sharks and he has little shark creatures. And we do allow him to watch from time to time some National Geographic shows with sharks. And his favorite thing is there's a thing called a whale fall. Do you know what this is? No. So a whale fall is when a whale dies. And then there's like a massive feeding frenzy of all these sharks basically just start like eating, you know, dead whale. And so you get these like programs in which it's a dead whale and there's like hundreds of sharks like eating this whale. And so he loves to watch these whale fall shows. Okay. That's interesting. So how does he like engage with sharks other than these TV shows? Does he have like books about this or something? Yeah, he has books. He knows what they look like. He knows what the biggest ones are. I mean, because he's my son, he trolls me about them. So he'll ask me, what's the biggest shark, dad? And I'll tell him it's a whale shark. And he says, no, I think a basking shark is bigger because again, my son, but you know, he'll read books, he'll watch shows. He has these stuffed animals. He has little figures, kind of everything and anything you could think about. And he's also super into dinosaurs, I should say. I mean, both of those are pretty standard, right? I mean, for boys his age. I mean, I think for kids, right? I mean, they used to be into fire trucks, as you know, and then they transitioned into 
you know, other things. My daughter also is super into unicorns and as is my niece. And so to bring our show full circle, I bought my niece some socks from Bucky's and the emblem of Bucky's is a beaver. And there are some socks though that make Bucky the beaver into a unicorn. So I bought her unicorn Bucky the beaver socks. So I can buy those for you the next time I go, if you want for your daughter. The entire like regular animals with unicorn is actually like a theme. We ended up somehow, I'm not even sure how this got into my house. It's like a hundred page workbook, which is all animals, regular animals with horns on their heads. And you also have stickers. So my daughter like discovered this and went into a frenzy. I'm just like putting these all over her bed. All these like unicorn, whatever. I mean, unicorn dog, unicorn cat, unicorn monkey, and so on. So one last question for you, Lee. Has she learned about narwhals? Not yet. Not yet. I should probably do that. Yeah, I should probably do that. Maybe it's a good way to transition. But until I do that, it is time to wrap up this episode. So we'd like to thank our sponsors at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem for funding the podcast and our great team that has been with us for many, many episodes. Our sound editor, Amitai Bar-Levi, and our webmaster, Vera Drikanati. Until next time, stay safe, keep masking indoors if rates are high, and send Lee some other animals with horns that he can introduce his daughter to.